I'm Alex Mosetta and welcome to Winner Take All. We got a new office. We're in the Minnesota office for the summer. Uh, Florida's a little toasty in these summer months. So we had a little bit of a hiatus for a couple of weeks, but we are back and, uh, and, and ready to pick up the regularly scheduled programming for Winner Take All and our fight against big tech monopolies. Past couple of weeks have been pretty interesting. Had a few different updates here in the markets, especially we've, you know, everyone's now familiar with, with the Fed raising interest rates, 75 basis points, um, indicating that they're going to raise it again, another 50 to 75 basis points. If you remember, we had Chris Leonard on the show, author of this book, Lords of Easy Money in February of 2022. And it was interesting. I mean, definitely go check out this interview if you're interested in just trying to figure out what's what happens when the Fed raises interest rates. Never had a 75 basis point jump in, you know, decades. Um, so we interviewed Chris Leonard. He chronicles the history of the Fed over the past hundred years, right? The creation of the Fed in its current incarnation, what happened in 08, uh, quantitative easing, right? All these topics. So Chris, what do you think? You think 4%, you know, once the Fed, get, if the Fed gets a 4% interest, do you think that starts to have some cataclysmic um, impact on the economy? Because that's where it was in back in 06. And then, you know, we had the crash of 08. He said, no, actually, if it gets to 2%, uh, if it gets to 2%, you're going to see fireworks uh, in a bad way. And we're already at 1.5, gang. This interview was February 24th, 2022. Okay. That's four months ago, almost to the day. Just four months ago, we were saying, oh, maybe they, you know, maybe they, the Fed at that time had signaled they could raise six or seven times this calendar year. And we were saying, well, maybe they could get to 2%. Um, Maybe they could get to 2% by the end of the year. And what Chris was saying is if, if that happens, 2%, you're going to see all kinds of things go really, really bad. And you got to go read the book you know, and other books. There's a bunch of books on this topic. But basically, you know, the way I think about it is when the cost of capital increases as interest rates rise, the ability for investors to make riskier bets, basically, you know, for example, <laughs> investing in tech startups, uh, which we're going to talk about here in a second, if you want to talk about the venture capital industry, that becomes much riskier, right? Because your cost of capital increases, you have other uh, less risky investments that are going to pay you, you know, just interest, uh, you know, other forms of debt, um, other assets that will now give you a return that before when you know, interest rates are at literally zero, you are kind of forced to, to push your money out into the riskier investment curve to continue to get um, an optimal return on your money. To me, what does this say? If, if the Fed, they're trying to instill a sense of confidence in everyone, but if you actually look at their actions these past few months, to me, it says exactly the opposite. Um, because they completely missed the ball on labeling inflation as being transitory. 
You can check the tape on this show. We've been calling it for over a year, saying that inflation was absolutely not transitory. Had a bunch of data points, still do have a bunch of data points that still show that inflation has not been quelled and is not transitory. And so what I think the Fed is realizing is that because they missed this for so long, this thing has really started to spiral out of control. They know, although they've been very bad at their job, the Fed, they're not idiots. They understand that, for example, when you raise interest rates to actually see the true impact of that interest rate increase, it takes many months, if not quarters, for markets to respond, right? There are real estate deals um, that are in motion, right? That, you know, are getting pot, working on a construction loan, got a construction loan, working on permanent financing, right? Um, there are mid to large size businesses that have debt, which they need to renew that debt. And, you know, even, even $100 million size business when they need to refinance their, their long-term debt, right? Um, that doesn't happen all the time, right? That happens, you know, they might have multiple tranches of debt, but, but the point is, you know, that happens over a period of time. Um, could be in a few years, could be in a few months, could be in a few quarters, but right, the business decisions that are being made when interest rates go from zero to 50 basis points to 1%, to now one and a half, possibly to two or two, two, five is what the Fed has signaled they're going to do in the next FOMC meeting here in, in July. You are not seeing even, even, you know, 60, 70% of the actual impact that the raise they've all, that the raises they've already done will have on the economy. Does that make sense? Right? Like, even just going from uh, 75 basis points to one and a half, which they just did, you're not going to see the full impact of that raise, of that 75 basis points raise for, for maybe, let's say, a year from now, right? By the time all the different ramifications and, and subsequent decisions that roll back on that are truly manifested in, in the economy. Okay, so why do I bring that up? Because... If they're continuing to raise at such a aggressive pace, that means that they're continuing to understand how high inflation is. And they have not fully grasped how high it is. That's the only thing that can make sense to me when, when you look at these reports, right? Uh, annual inflation rate is 8.6%. Or the 12 months ended May 2022. Hey, you got to understand that those readings, they have a bunch of exceptions. They're not including a bunch of things, right? So there's a bunch of adjustments. <laughs> you know, like our WeWork videos we did, community adjusted EBITDA, and that BS uh, term, they're fudging the numbers on inflation and they admit it. They say, well, you know, uh, we got to exclude this and we got to exclude that. This 8.6% to me, is saying that in in reality, you're pro it's probably at least double this, right? You're probably actually seeing over 20% inflation, just massive inflation. If the Fed is continuing to raise at this rate, right? Like if they are needing to be so aggressive, that means putting the genie back in the bottle, the genie being 
hyperinflation, that that genie is so far out of the bottle that they will risk, not risk, I mean, it's pretty much, in my mind, a certainty that they are going to crash the economy. No one wants to say that we're in a recession. We're in a recession. Um, everyone wants to say, oh, it looks like there's a recession on the horizon. We're in a recession. Okay. But despite all of that, right, the Fed's main objective over the decades has been to keep inflation in check. And man, we called it on the show, been calling on the show for over a year. They missed the ball on it last year. This thing has now just gotten completely out of control. So what am I hearing in the market? What I'm hearing in the market is that we have yet to really see the impact of inflation. Inflation is still coming, right? And here's how I know, because we do a lot of work in B2B distribution. And what my B2B distributor sources are telling me is, so they buy from manufacturers, right? So B2B distribution buys from manufacturers. Then B2B distributors sell to a business customer, which then sells to an end consumer. They could be selling it to a contractor who is then buying materials to go build a house or a building. They could be selling it to a, you know, a restaurant or a retail store that is then going to sell it to the consumer, right? So there, from the point where the B2B distributor buys that product from the manufacturer to the point where it actually then trickles all the way down to the end consumer is many months, maybe six months, some cases shorter, some cases longer. But right, so what they're saying is their manufacturers, this is across the boards, many different verticals, B2B distribution, but they're saying is I'm seeing manufacturers, and this isn't just this is this is weeks. I'm talking about over just the past few weeks, right? So before and after the Fed now raised 75 basis points, what am I seeing? What I'm seeing is they're saying manufacturers are raising prices. The number of price increases that they're seeing manufacturers provide has only continued to increase, right? So manufacturers aren't, aren't ingesting prices down, okay? So if they're doing a price change, price is going up. Distributors are saying, hey, we, the volume of price changes that we're seeing from manufacturers is only increasing despite the Fed raising interest rates, okay? A, and then B, that the size of the price increase is also increasing, right? Like, like a supplier might actually raise their price by over 20%. Unheard of, right? Usually a few, few percentage points, maybe 5%, be a big, no. That you're seeing like 20% jumps, not, not all from all, all the suppliers, right? But you're just seeing the volume of price increases increasing. And then you're seeing the, the variability, the size of the increase also hitting astronomical records. That's the bad news. The good news is that there are some labor markets where um, distributors are seeing some progress in the labor market to hire um, you know, frontline workers, uh, people who work in the, in the warehouse or drive trucks, et cetera. So that is... Some piece of good news, B2B distributors generally have, you know, 50, 60% of their variable cost is um, in just human labor. The supplier increases definitely trickle down to the end consumer. You know, the B2B distributor then needs to raise prices. Then the business customer that the distributor sells to needs to raise prices down to the end consumer, right? So there's, there's kind of multiple price increases after the manufacturer sells to the distributor. 
none of this has actually changed the supplier's ability to um, control their costs. I'd say generally across the board in just about all of the verticals of B2B distribution and, and, and that could be from building material and construction related verticals to perishable to, you know, industrial supplies kind of across the board. So that's the only way I can try to make sense of how the Fed continues to raise rates at such an aggressive clip, having to know that the economy is not stable. When you print this amount of money, you exacerbate the situation, right? You don't make it more stable. You've made it more unstable. And um, so anyway, go read Chris Leonard's book. Talks a lot about Fed, the role of just the printing press and, um, and what that does to the economy and its stability or lack thereof. So rising interest rates, interest rates are only going to continue to rise. VCs are shouting uh, from, you know, from the top of their rooftops. Tech startups need to hoard cash and be prepared for a very long, dark period of time. Um, so here's the data from end of Q1. So there's a lag here, right? Because when you actually have the, the data announced, there's call it a at least a two or three month lag from the time that if you're a startup, you get your term sheet from your lead investor, then you got to go get all the other investors in the deal, then you close that deal. And then there's usually an additional lag from when everyone actually finds out the terms of that investment, right? So that could be anywhere from two to three months to six months before you actually can have some visibility into the data of what's going on, right? So there's a lag here. That lag also exists in the real estate market, right? From the time you uh, you list your house, someone buys it, then you've got right all the diligence and, and closing time, and you know escrow and all the stuff that goes into actually closing that transaction takes months, and and until then that transaction is considered finalized, and then is actually published in you know um, for for others to see what the price of the house was. Right? It's very similar to tech startups. Tech startups probably actually taking longer um, than, you know, a, a real estate transaction for these kind of private financings. So what's really interesting is if you look at late stage valuations, this is looking ending in March 31st, 2022, you actually already started to see a decline. You had a peak valuation. This is late stage of about a billion dollars, right? I mean, it's just insane. Pretty much doubled from 2020 to 2021, your average uh, late stage tech valuation. And you can see in 2019, that was maybe 350. So 350 to 500, looking at this ball here, this ball is the average to a billion in 2021. But now in 2022, we just have one quarter of data. And mind you, right, like those deals, some of them might have actually, you know, the term sheets might have actually been written in, say, January of 2021 for it to close and then be recorded in the quarter itself of Q1. But also, you know, I think you had a lot of those term sheets that were actually finalized. Now you have the holiday season in, in let's say, mid Q4, and then it got the holidays, but from the time it's actually closed and then reported. So this is this data, this decrease, a, a peak of a billion dollars in 2021 
Then now $600 million trending by, this is end of Q1, 2022. But that was all those deals were done before the Fed started to raise interest rates, right? We interviewed this guy, Chris Leonard, author of Lords of Easy Money, four months ago, February 24th, 2022. There was maybe one, one 25 basis point rate hike, rate hike by then. And then they'd signaled to do a bunch more. But, you know, January, none of this, none of this was factored in anywhere to the degree of now where investors are at, right? So my point is you had a 40% decline really off of deals that probably started in Q4 and then closed in Q1 and then, you know, were reported into the study. You got to account for that lag. So for the deals that you're going to see for the Q2 data, which will come out in the, in the next few weeks here as we get into July, that data is going to be on term sheets that were really being delivered and agreed upon in mid to late Q1, which we started to see what the Fed was doing with interest rates and, and the economy and lack of demand and all this stuff, right? The softening. But for what we're seeing right now, where you just had a 75 basis point increase, signaling another one on the horizon. This is, this is now scary stuff. Um, you were going to see this, this number, this late stage number. You're going to see this number come down in Q2 when that data comes out. And then Q3 data, I think, is when you're really going to see. And that Q3 data isn't going to come out until October, right? Yeah, maybe four months from now. But that's the data of what's happening right now. So if I had to guess, you know, we actually have no fear on this show of actually making more concrete um, assumptions. They might be wrong, but actually I'd say so far our track record is better than the Fed's. So I don't know. Yeah, maybe relatively we're pretty good. So from the Q1 data of 2022, we're still not below... We're still not below where we were in 2020, okay? We're still not anywhere near where we were in 2019, which is at like 350. I think to me, that's really the anchor. Is you say, hey, should we be somewhere in 2020 land, 2019 land, somewhere in between 2019 and 2020? You know, when, when the data comes out in four or five months from now in October, where will that average late stage uh, tech valuation be for that quarter. These numbers are annualized. So Q1 is going to, is going to buoy Q2 and Q3 on an annualized basis, right? It's going to prop it up. So for the year of 2022, where will the year of 22 land? Yeah, it probably won't go lower than 2019 on the year, right? Just because Q1 is still higher than 20, all of 2020, right? Uh, so that's going to, it's going to be much harder for your overall 2022 average late stage tech startup valuation to be lower than 2019 at this point, just because you're off to a strong start. But I do think on, on a quarterly basis, if you compare the, um, the Q3 data when that comes out, which is actually the deals that are happening now, because the deals I'm seeing now, it's bad. Um, I'm seeing retrades. 
I'm seeing startups with very reputable um, VCs, you know, Series B, Series C stage startups. So these aren't baby startups. I'm seeing, I'm seeing lead VCs call in the startups, give them a hug, and then kick them in the nuts and say, yeah, you know, we'll still fund you, but like, we're going to need a 40% discount. <laughs> and the startups are doing it. They're taking it. They're agreeing. That's a crazy thing. They're not saying go to hell. How could you do this? This is so disrespectful. I'm going to tell all my friends. No one else is going to ever do work with you. V, you know, VC firm startups are like, okay, um, let's still do the deal. Give me the money. That's what I'm seeing. That information though, right? Those deals from the time they actually close, get recorded, get reported, won't be in my charts till October. Similar to the housing market, just a little bit longer. So now this is late stage. And, uh, and, and so if you look at early stage, then early stage, and everything's lagged from when the Fed does this, then public markets do that. And then, you know, um, more illiquid transactions like you know, private tech investments or real estate, you know, then, then you see a trickle there in the late stage and then eventually gets to the early stage, you know, tech investing. But right, if you look at this data for Q1 2022, things are still up, right? Things are still rosy. Look at our average, our little ball, it's up. It's higher than 2021, right? So this stuff hasn't even really made it into the early stage. Early stage, you're seeing early stage, uh, pre-money VC funded valuations for Q1 2022 average of like a quarter million dollars. That's insane. That's like actually insane. 2020 and 2019 were basically right around 100 million bucks. 2021 was 150. Bam, then you go to 250. So again, those are deals that were happening in Q4. And then we're being reported on in Q1. That's some scary stuff. Those things are coming way down. I think those things, where is Q3 early stage going to be? Because the early stage is riskier, mind you, right? All of this, the riskier you are, the more painful it is for you to get the money. That's how it goes, right? So we saw this right in the in the early stages of the COVID, of, of when COVID hit, right? You, there was a flight to safety. Uh, investors were fleeing to later stage tech startups that presumably were less risky, had you know more of a proven business model, more existing traction. And so you saw a flight to safety in the early days of, what was that, like Q2, summer of 2020. By the time it trickles down, it takes longer for it to trickle down, which is kind of counterintuitive. You, you kind of think, well, maybe it would start riskier coming. But what you're seeing is kind of trickles down to the early stage, but then the early stage, the clawback as it hits, as it trickles down to early stage is going to hit early stage and, and the percent decline in the average valuation and, and, and number of deals done, dollars invested, all those stats are going to be relatively hit much greater than the later stage, right? So if you're already starting to see these numbers in the later stage, those numbers are only going to be worse for the early stage. If you look at the world, the B2B distribution, largest industry in the United States, $8 trillion in size, the automotive industry, right? Cars, pretty big industry is like $1.2 trillion. 
B2B distribution, $8 trillion, okay? Massive. We've talked a lot about B2B marketplaces on the show. We've talked a lot about Amazon on the show. We talked about like Home Depot on the show. But let's talk about manufacturers, the folks, the partners to the B2B distributor, right? Uh, the, the seller to the B2B distributor, right? The B2B distributor is the customer of the manufacturer. Someone you would think that the manufacturer wants to keep happy and, you know, work very closely with, right? They've worked together for decades. But that actually is changing. What we are seeing is that in B2B distribution and B2B marketplaces, a big reason why uh, these B2B marketplaces are actually getting traction, it's not because of the distributors. The distributors know that marketplace in the end game is most likely going to screw them. It's not going to help them. In the vacuum of getting supply side participation from distributors, these marketplaces have been able to woo manufacturers. Hmm, why would they do that? Don't manufacturers understand that the marketplace, once it gets to the end state, is then going to cut out the distributor entirely? Generally, I'm, you know, B2B distribution is different, okay? So I'll just preface that with there's a lot of things that have made B2B distribution and just the, you know, B2B marketplace model um, or, or much more resilient than in B2C, okay? And we've talked about in, the, in, in other videos before, right? But generally, the, the game of marketplace is to cut out the third-party seller and then just get to the manufacturer. And if you look at what's happening with manufacturers today on the B2C side, they haven't necessarily been too fond of working with these marketplaces because the marketplaces on a relative basis have much more power and leverage than any of the largest uh, retailers had with a manufacturer, right? Look at Amazon's leverage today versus Walmart at its peak. Not even close. Amazon's relative share of consumer spend vis-a-vis -vis where Walmart was in its heyday, what, 30 years ago. It's, it's honestly not even close. Relatively, Amazon's buying power and leverage over manufacturers today versus Walmart, it pales in comparison. And we've covered this on the show. We've covered this with uh, Nike suing StockX, not even suing Amazon, right? Nike um, worked with Amazon for a brief minute, then took their inventory off of Amazon, now is suing StockX, a vertical specific sneaker marketplace. You're seeing all kinds of stories where manufacturers are very reticent to work with the marketplace, trying to do their own marketplace, and kind of stuck. So why would manufacturers enable? They're actually enabling, and I'm gonna give you a few examples, we've talked about some on the show here, enable these marketplaces, right? For a short-term gain, but is it really worth the squeeze in the long run? Are, are, the, are the manufacturers actually trading short-term gain and but really just kind of shooting themselves <laughs> i don't maybe not even in the foot maybe it's just in the leg like actually worse so we've covered b2b distribution at length we've literally tracked all the tech investing and tech acquisition activity by b2b distribution over the past five years we've covered that previously on the show so we took that data and then lined it up against 
just 20 manufacturers. Okay. I didn't scour the whole universe of manufacturers. That would have been insane. All I had to do was pick 20. And those 20 alone have crushed all of the collective tech investing and, and buying power of B2B distribution. $8 trillion industry, 20 manufacturers have beat it. I didn't include, by the way, in those 20, I, it could have been so easy to include like Ford and GM and, and, and Caterpillar and Deere and these massive kind of vehicle manufacturers and OEMs. And I could have included them. I did not. I deliberately did not include them. I didn't think it would be fair. Let's count. Let's count these. Um, so here's the list. Standard Industries investing in Hover. Hilti acquires Fieldwire field last year for $300 million. Stanley Black & Decker acquires M-Suite. It's a smaller, looked kind of like an aqua hire. Snap-on, a tool manufacturer, acquires Dealer FX for $200 million in 2021. I actually love all of those deals. Um, they're all great in their own way. Schneider Electric invests in Reno Run, which is like the Instacart of, of construction goods, like same-day delivery of construction goods. That is a prime example of what I'm talking about with manufacturers enabling these marketplaces. So what am I at there? Five manufacturers. 3M acquires this company called LeanTech. Honeywell invests in this company called Rapid SOS. They've invested in a few other things like Fictive, which is like a competitor to Zometry, Chain.io. Heidelberg Cement invests in this company called Geotech. CMIX has been doing, CMIX has a ventures arm. CMIX has been investing um, in a number of different tech startups. Uh, we've got a handful listed here alone. So that's 10. I'm at 10 manufacturers now. Residio Technologies invests in this company called Brilliant. And 11, PPG, the paint company, acquires this company called Paint Zen, marketplace company. So what am I at? 12 now. That was for $75 million. Coke Industries, Coke, um, you know, owns Georgia Pacific and a bunch of different building material related companies. They've got a, a venture arm called Coke Disruptive Technologies, KDT. They're investing in a number of things. They invest in a company called TradeShift. They also invest in fabric. So now I'm at 13. Uh, Siemens is investing in companies, so 14. IDEX has done a number of interesting things. Uh, they've acquired multiple tech startups. They are the largest veterinarian lab provider and uh, kind of diagnostic company in the country, but multiple kind of different SaaS tools. That's 15. So that's just, that's 15. That's it, 15. Yeah, I did not include GE either. GE has done stuff, but I'm not. So just those 15 companies, the blue is the manufacturers. The manufacturers spent nearly a trillion dollars in tech M&A in 2021. Both the numbers uh, for, for manufacturing and B2B distribution and tech M&A um, you know, was near nothing in 2020. But right, manufacturers historically have been investing in tech M&A over the years and have been somewhat consistent in that with kind of an, an outsized banner year in 2017. Now, here's the good news is you've started to see B2B distribution make progress in 2021. Now, if you look at 2022, the manufacturers are, are, are actually comparatively increasing their spend compared to 2021. 
Whereas in the past, they've been somewhat consistent. If you look at 2018, 2019, 2021, they're all a little bit under a trillion dollars. This is just tech M&A. We are making an assumption where we don't have the data. You know, the, the number isn't publicly uh, released in terms of what they bought the tech company for. We assume that it's kind of like an aqua hire type deal. It's a smaller transaction. We assume it's roughly a $25 million acquisition just so that we can, you know, have some of those numbers flow into this, right? Um, your larger deals, they're announcing those, those sizes, but I'm not including really any of those billion dollar acquisitions that I mentioned uh, just a few minutes ago. I'm really, you know, I'm in probably the biggest manufacturer tech acquisition on this list is probably Hilti's $300 million acquisition of Fieldwire, right? Everything else there is smaller, but um, you can still see the manufacturers out in front. And we're only including uh, tech M&A that's actually or investing in startups that are providing software to the end customer, right? Um, so that Fieldwire company that Hilti bought is providing software like collaboration and job management software for when you're doing construction jobs. Makes sense. Um, Snap-on bought a company called DealerFX, which is technology to enable dealers who are you know, selling these tools and that kind of stuff. These are uh, what I would call channel disruption investments. These are investing in tech startups that are in the distribution or the sales channel of the manufacturer, right? If you look more broadly at the tech M&A from these manufacturers, they're spending actually way more money than this, but they're buying tech companies that will actually kind of help them innovate in the actual product or delivery of, the, of a service offering or the product offering that they're selling. So we took all that out and we're just looking at the tech investments in companies that are providing software to downstream into the channel for the end customer, right? So just that narrow view, 15 manufacturers, customer facing technology, they're still beating all of B2B distribution. Now you look at this, this is the just the minority investment count of activity. We don't have the numbers on how much if you're just investing in a tech startup, not buying them, we don't have the numbers on how much a manufacturer actually invested, you know, as a part of that overall round. So we just look at the total count of activity and the total count of activity. Actually, distributors were ahead. This is looking at those same 15 companies, um, 15 manufacturers compared to all of B2B distribution. In 2021, manufacturers jumped out in front, had 13 uh, minority tech investments across those 15 manufacturers in that kind of downstream customer facing technology startup. So on both wavelengths on total dollars put into tech acquisitions and then total count of minority uh, startup investments, manufacturers are leading, not just all manufacturers, these 15, I referenced 20 in our newsletter, but really just 15 beating all of B2B distribution. Not good. Okay. We talk about some of these deals in here, but let me give you some other examples that don't make it into the data where you see this idea of manufacturers enabling marketplaces. So Felix, one of the leading B2B metal marketplaces, just did an interview. And you read this interview and, and it gives away some interesting things. They just raised basically $20 million earlier this year. But you say, well, okay, so who's giving a metal marketplace supply, right? Is it coming from the metal distributors? Maybe. 
But so he starts to say, more than 1,000 customers, so buyers, use the Felix platform. Some 40% of users are steel companies. Users could be a buyer or a seller. Hogenson wouldn't name them, but says, we work with some of the largest mills. Hmm. Well, a mill is not a distributor. A mill is a manufacturer. They are a supplier of metal. Buyers on the platform include Fortune 500 companies and steel companies themselves use Felix for both selling and buying. The majority of our buyers are also steel suppliers, he says. A steel supplier, I assume, he might be referring to both a distributor and a mill in the word supplier. But here, we work with some of the largest mills. Mills, enabling and providing supply to who? the B2B marketplace. Interesting, right? Let's look at another company. Node, they're leading a chemical, B2B chemical marketplace. These guys don't work with distributors at all. They've completely cut the distributor out and only work between manufacturer and business customer. So those are three different examples. Schneider investing into Reno Run, the Instacart of like construction goods. Node cutting distributors out entirely and, and having the largest chemical manufacturers on their platform, DuPont, Dow, Metal Mills, Enabling, Felix, uh, Rebus. Rebus has also indicated similar language uh, about their close relationship with mills, right? When you read the press releases and they list who, they, who their suppliers are, they list mills before they list distributors. Hmm. Those little cues, right? And you say, wow, manufacturers are enabling the B2B disruptors. That's, I mean, that's a big deal. It's a very big deal. Uh, and B2B distribution needs to grapple with that. And they're starting to, but they need to move faster, right? If you look at my charts, yes, they're starting to do tech M&A. Yes, they're starting to do more tech investing. But so is everyone else, and they're doing it way more. Why is that important? And why is that relevant to the show? Why is it something I care about? Because if what happens to B2B and the supply chain, what happened to B2C, where Amazon is so dominant and has taken advantage of suppliers and continues to take advantage of suppliers, and no one can do anything about it. Congress can't do anything about it. Our regulators don't do anything about it. Everyone's complicit, or they're distracted, or they get they chase the the shiny object. They just don't know, or or worse, you know, they're getting paid uh, by the tech monopoly. How do you stop this and get out in front of this? Is you need more competition, right? You need the incumbents to react, and you need the incumbents to collaborate and work with tech startups that are friendly to the incumbents. That's the only way. You got to bring both sides of that aisle together, the, the incumbents and the, the tech innovators. You got to bring them together to combat the big, bad tech monopolies, Amazon's, Home Depot's that are coming in. Home Depot, not really a tech monopoly, but still a big player coming in and trying to disrupt. And that will create more parity. That will create more competition. That will make it harder uh, for the imbalance that we see in the B2C market to replicate itself in the B2B market. 
But that is also what's interesting is that the manufacturers are helping to tinker around and, 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 and shake things up, which you wouldn't have necessarily thought that would be the case. Um, I wouldn't have thought that would be the case a few years ago, but uh, is it the smartest decision for the industry at large? No. But for the individual, right, for the individual manufacturer that invests in downstream technology that, you know, tries to cut out its distribution or, or you know, um, have its own digital distribution capability in, additional, in addition to using more traditional B2B distributors, right, that individual manufacturer should potentially be better off. But the broader industry, well, they'll kind of wreak havoc upon it. Um, that's what you're seeing. Freitos, or if you, know, if you look at the name, it kind of looks like Freitos, but I think you pronounce it Freitos. They've announced that they're going public through a SPAC. In the disclosure of going public, we found some interesting news about who's going to be on their board of directors. And two names stuck out. One was the CEO of FedEx Logistics, this guy named Udo, and the uh, chief cargo officer of Qatar Airways. What's so interesting about this is you're actually seeing a prime example of what I was just talking about needs to happen in in other parts of the supply chain like B2B distribution. This is a prime example of it, right? Of kind of saying, hey, here's a new disruptive digital business model. And who are the kind of more traditional players? And in this case, FedEx, I think, is the one who you could regard as the incumbent. FedEx's business model and Freitos's business model, you could say, do have some conflict, but they also do share a lot of synergy. And Qatar, I think this is more of a net net upside, right? Qatar has a cargo business. They got a bunch of planes, Qatar Airways, and Freitos is going to help give them demand and, and give them volumes and basically, you know, bring them customers that they could use for their, their cargo business. And it wasn't just FedEx and Qatar. It, these were also financial investors. The cargo division of International Airlines Group, which owns British Airways um, and a bunch of other ones, and Latam Airlines Group in South America. So they're not investors, but they are non-financial partners, right? So they've figured out a way to, you know, just give them a bunch of volumes. Maybe they give them some preferential status. But now you're seeing that actually FedEx and Qatar helped helped enable this marketplace to be successful. Now I'm not analyzing or criticizing, you know, what the SPAC price is and, you know, the financial, if it's priced properly or not. I'm just saying this is actually a great example of someone who you'd view who would be threatened by a freight cargo oriented marketplace. They're doing a lot of international uh, volumes here, right? You know, they've got a whole section for uh, Amazon FBA importers and exporters, right? So it makes sense if you think about, you know, why these airlines are uh, kind of strategic participants and Qatar is actually on the board of this because, you know, you got a lot of this international shipping that's going on. So they helped to bring the volumes. They helped to bring the supply. These were huge supply side enablers. And I think FedEx could also bring some demand too if they wanted to, or, you know, these Supply side partners have demand that they've been booking as well. So they were also, if they wanted to, able to integrate uh, Fredos's technology into, into the broader suite, right? If that makes sense. So there could be a lot of ways that they are even more deeply integrated with the company 
using their technology. You see, they've got a data product here in addition to just the marketplace. So um, a lot of ways that these strategics can enable this marketplace to be successful. Well, the strategic said, well, if I'm going to enable you to be successful, I want to have not only a financial upside for myself, right, an equity upside for myself, um, but I also want to have some governance. I want to be on your board. I want to make sure that if you get too big for your britches, you don't turn around and what? And screw me. That's where the governance comes in. They actually have two board seats between FedEx and Qatar. So this is a great example. And I think a testament to, I think really FedEx really leaning in and looking at new digital disruptive models and getting comfortable with new ways of operating. This, was a, this is a big shift how this company operates, right? You, I mean, you literally look at it. Freight comparison for over 10,000 companies. Compare rates now, right? They're trying to just drive down that price in a very kind of marketplace-esque fashion. But FedEx is enabling this, right? And supporting this disruption to happen. Very difficult thing to do for a large traditional player um, like a FedEx to get comfortable with this. So kudos to FedEx and then, you know, Qatar and the other strategics in here as well. This is a great example of what needs to happen more broadly in the supply chain. And what does that do? It prevents players like Amazon and other tech monopolies from having their way with the supply chain disruption that's, that's inevitable, right? This change is inevitable. And if you don't do it, if you don't embrace it as the incumbent, then someone else is going to do it. So you might as well do it and have some more control and some have some financial upside. And then you can use that to reposition and evolve your core business in a way and be out in front of how the rest of the traditional players operate because, because you're at the forefront of kind of ushering in the new way that business is done through a digital means, right? That's how, that's how you want to be playing if you are particularly a, a large traditional player. Revlon has filed bankruptcy blaming supply woes and uh, like COVID and supply chain problems. Doesn't really make sense. This company is a re really interesting, uh, just whole story around this. This company called, uh, basically this activist investor, multi-multi-billionaire named Ron Perlman bought this company through his kind of holding company investment business called McAndrews and Forbes. Bought it decades ago through kind of a aggressive activist investor tactic. They used uh, Mike Milken, um, who runs uh, the Milken Institute now, who did all these junk bonds. I think he went to jail for a brief stint of time. Uh, but junk, uh, Milken in the 80s kind of introduced this whole idea of junk bonds. People were buying companies all over the place, you know, with very little actual equity capital, leveraging them all the way up to the hilts, buying them and then, you know, <laughs> trying, trying to make things work. Didn't always work. But with Revlon, it did for a long time until basically COVID came along. And here's the interesting thing. I mean, Ron Perlman's a very smart guy. This guy don't have all the details. Not many people do. Perlman, I think, will be just fine. Like he's figured out a way. And before I even read this article in Bloomberg, my my reaction was, you know, I saw the headline and then I started to read into this. Revlon files bankruptcy. Da, 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 loan. I was like, oh, OK, well. I bet you Ron Perlman has figured out a way to protect his interests in this. And like, he's fine. Everyone else, probably not, but like, sure, he's fine. And then you read the article and you go kind of read more of what happened. 
And that looks exactly what happened here. There is some kind of um, creditor adjustment in 2020. I mean, just, just listen to this, right? At issue is a disputed asset transfer, largely in 2020, which saw Revlon stave off default by cutting a deal with lenders that moved collateral out of other creditors' reach. The financing maneuver angered those who missed out and sparked years of litigation. It also inadvertently embroiled Citigroup after the bank helped arrange the deal and later mistakenly paid some creditors nearly $900 million while intending to process a routine interest payment. What? Whoops, did that was $900 million? Whoops. Was Perlman one of these creditors that got some of this $900 million? Mm, probably. Probably. Perlman has seen that this company ain't doing so hot. You think he just woke up in 2020 and was like, oh, we're in trouble. Can't pay our bills. No. He's figured out a hedge himself a long time ago. He's going to be just fine. Everyone else, not so much. He's a shifty guy. But, you know, I don't know. Is it illegal? You got to leave that up to the courts. He's smart, but he knows how to protect his interests. And other people can get screwed in the process. And I know this from, you know, personal stories that I won't get into here, but guy's an animal. So you bet yourself that he figured out to protect his own and all this funny business, which we don't really have all the information on. He's behind it. And like, this was all part of his plan. He saw this, he saw this coming for years. We've been talking on the show about all these like boutique cosmetic marketplaces that have been popping up and doing really cool things uh, in Asia, coming to the US, other parts of the globe. If you were a traditional cosmetic manufacturer, how can you embrace these kinds of boutique cosmetic marketplaces? How can you, you know, you have seen some of the other brands spending all this insane money. KKW Beauty closes 200 million deal. Yeah, the Kardashian Beauty line closes a $200 million deal with uh, Cody, Cody, uh, with this, you know, cosmetic company, massive deal, right? This is the second family member to sign a, a deal with them in November, 2019, her sister Kylie sold 51% of her brand for $600 million. You're seeing marketplace activity. You're seeing social media platform activity, right? You're basically seeing platform business models, whether social media platforms, uh, product marketplaces, decimate the traditional business model for cosmetics when you can lower that barrier to entry you know it's not that hard to make this stuff this makeup barrier to entry to actually create the product is not very high you know there's a bunch of third party like manufacturers you can just do contract manufacturing for and outsource the manufacturing for it right the hard part is actually just selling it getting in front of the consumer you know you can have nice high pro price points very high margin um, on these products. People are very familiar to pay a lot of money uh, for makeup. And it's right a consumable, like you use it and you need more of it. So there's a lot of money in it. Big focus on just getting in front of consumers. How do you affect that purchasing decision? You basically seen the platform business model completely upend the entire industry. You really haven't seen any incumbent cosmetic player, I would say, truly embrace 
having their own platform business model. Cody is actually, uh, you know, in Europe, trying to prevent their retailers from selling on marketplaces like Amazon and others. That got scrutiny in the EU with the EU regulators and retailers not wanting to have to agree with that and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, these cosmetic manufacturers can see what's going on. I would say none of them have truly been able to embrace platform innovation in its fullest. Cody trying to kind of work within and play within other people's platforms, not the best place to be, very precarious place to be. Revlon, I don't think here really just did much. <laughs> like, you know, they did stuff, but they kind of didn't do any drastic change. And Perlman was just figuring out how to protect his own, knowing that, you know, I don't know, we might, we might have some issues on the horizon, but I bet he's been preparing this for years. Like, you know, none of this was new in 2018, 2019. Oh, platforms. Oh, Instagram's a thing. Oh, people, right? Like none of that was new. Too late to do anything now. If you're Revlon, what you would needed to have done was, you know, be working on this years ago. And I don't think they really did. I think a good example of not innovating, but the billionaire is still keeping his money. <laughs> um, and, you know, just platform disruption at its finest from all angles, multiple platform types coming in on this one. So this one's pretty cool. We've got um, Material Bank, really cool B2B marketplace. They they do all the all these like next day samples for construction materials, design materials, kind of architectural materials. They were very upstream in the process, working with designers and architects to help, you know, give them samples of products, right? Hey, you're, you know, you're designing this house, or you're designing this product. You want to get samples, boom, you order it on the site. Literally the next morning, uh, you'll get that sample delivered to you. They have Material Bank, we've covered them before, has um, hundreds of thousands of square feet, I think, right in Memphis. They do some really cool stuff with um, robotics in the warehouse to pack and ship your product, right? Like you could order a sample at 10 p.m. and get it by noon the next day. They actually don't charge you an arm and a leg on shipping. They're right there, have a deep relationship with FedEx, do all of this. And where does the marketplace make money? It's actually from the supplier as opposed to the designers um, that need these samples, right? So very interesting two-sided marketplace dynamic, B2B marketplace for sure. Very cool company doing a lot of interesting things. We've talked about their aspirations to move what I would call downstream, right? Into the production workflow. Hey, we've got a designer. Hey, we're no, you know, you're looking at, you know, building this building or this house or this product line. Um, now, how could we capture the actual spend on all the materials after you've, you know, approved whatever samples? And now you see them buying this company called Architizer, which was also in our top 50 B2B marketplace ranking. Architizer is home to the world's largest database of architectural projects and is a renowned and trusted source for architects, interior designers, and landscape architects. So, you know, if you go to their site, they have a lot of content. And then, you know, to kind of help you with inspiration and all this stuff, but then you can also look at getting the products and information on manufacturers. It's not necessarily a content platform, but they're providing you a lot of content, maybe a lot of that in a linear fashion then their marketplace is really on the, the product side of things. Not necessarily on the samples, but hey, now you're going to go actually buy um, all these products and, and do this remodel or whatever it is, right? 
So you can see Material Bank, which has had insane growth, has raised a lot of money, um, now kind of moving more downstream into the supply chain and getting those larger B2B orders beyond just the sample. So now if you think about it, you have two different product product marketplace business models, right? Where their original B2B marketplace is more with the kind of like end customer project owner and then the supplier and connecting those two. And then this architizer is still with the maybe like design firm, contractor, owner as the customer, and then with a lot of now suppliers. Yes, some manufacturers, but also like the distributors and bringing that marketplace together, right? How you can you actually get the products in bulk to the job site? Not going to get that from every manufacturer, right? That's the role of distributors is, is having that inventory, having it be localized and near, you know, that job site or, or to create that product line. So I think this is a great example of the B2B marketplace landscape maturing. And you're starting to see some of your leading players engage in it's kind of consolidation. You have seen some consolidation where you have similar um, similar B2B marketplaces kind of merged together. Or now, you know, this one I see is a very complementary expansion or merging of, of companies. Other B2B marketplaces that we've seen kind of attach themselves more recently would be 750 and Provi, both in the kind of liquor, B2B liquor marketplace space. You've seen them merge together. They recently actually sued at least one of the largest uh, liquor distributors. So that, you know, that merger and then that subsequent lawsuit doesn't spell a good situation for the Pro V750 situation, right? If they're actually suing one of the largest distributors, it, you would think that they are being successful if it was the other way around, if the liquor distributor was suing the B2B marketplace, especially after they've merged and maybe consolidated their market position, but, but no, other way around. So, you know, I don't know if that one's actually going as well. I do think this Material Bank Archetizer one is, is coming from a position of strength for Material Bank Archetizer, I don't know. I don't know if they really, you know, would Architizer want to do this deal if they're really crushing it? Eh, I don't know. We got we got to see what the deal terms are. But I think for Material Bank, their business model generally is doing very well, and they've had some really strong fundraises. And I and I and I really like some of the other deals that they've been doing. So I think the position of strength for Material Bank, maybe not so much for the Provi uh, 750 of the world. Grub Market is another one that just announced uh, another deal. Um, a very small transaction with this kind of uh, food analytics company called Cubix. Cubix has not raised any money publicly before. You know, they talk about the digitization of the food supply chain here. What kind of food analytics Cubix can bring to the table? They've also been an example of a of a of a B two B food marketplace that's also using M and A to buy linear distribution assets. So they're actually a hybrid. You know, they've got third party sellers like you'd expect in a classical marketplace, but then they've actually, they're actually buying their own distribution 1P capabilities. So they're actually doing 1P and 3P in kind of an a la Amazon model where Amazon, right, has inventory on balance sheet and sells that inventory and then has a bunch of third-party sellers. So Grub Markets has raised a bunch of money. It's kind of that hybrid marketplace model uh, just in the past week here announcing this kind of analytics, you know, aqua hire. I think it was a very small deal, but still, you know, bringing on 
these additional capabilities. I would imagine it's kind of an all stock deal, right? So this Cubix company, I'm not privy if there was cash or not, but you would think it's a very small deal, kind of an aqua hire. Hey, we're just going to give you shares in Grub Market. Um, let's bring your capability and your analytics expertise and in food into the business. So that is, I think, a vote of confidence if it is that deal structure, which I could be wrong, but it's the cues of it seem like that's what it is. To me, that's a vote of confidence in how Grub Market is doing for this company, you know, to come on board. Now, maybe they were going to go out of business and, you know, Cubix was not doing well at all. Um, but I, I, I do think um, strategically this, this makes sense to me for what Grub Market is doing and generally seems pretty positive signals. Uh, from how Grub Market is doing. That said, I do think you are going to start to see, given our earlier discussion around the market, the VC environment, et cetera, you are going to start to see more startups all over the all over the place, including in B two B, have trouble and and need a lifeline, need to raise a down round, need to get acquired or go out of business. You are going to start to see that a lot more over the next year, 18 months. So be prepared. With the economy softening, interest rates going up, tech valuations going down, startups are going to have challenging next couple of years. Everyone's been talking about that. We actually see more activity from strategics uh, being a likely outcome rather than less. You know, again, in the fight against large tech monopolies, how do you fight back and win? We need traditional incumbents and tech startups to work together. The, the large tech monopolies generally have their hands tied where they would love to be doing tech M&A in a downturn because they still have more cash than they know what to do with, even if there's an, a downturn or not. Generally, they can't use M&A as a mechanism to 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 really accelerate their growth, which is great news. So what that means is, as purely financial investors are more tepid to invest dollars, they kind of want to see where things should shake out, right? Let the dust settle, but then by then it might be too late. Strategic buyers and strategic investors, like large traditional incumbents, can use this opportunity to really lean in and find some companies that have a great team, great capability, maybe some traction, but just not enough scale to get all the way to where they need to be on their own, um, you know, are looking at alternative ways to continue to grow and accelerate growth and a strategic partner that brings more than just capital, brings scale, which is really what these tech startups need more than anything is scale, is now a very attractive, even more attractive, already was attractive, now even more attractive thing for a prospective startup to entertain. And so back when COVID first hit, McKinsey came out with an interesting article looking at past downturns and what large companies have done, you know, as it relates to M&A. Now, this M&A analysis is really looking, not looking at specifically tech M&A, um, but that's really where, where my mind is coming from this. So, you know, they talk here saying, Pursue programmatic M&A through cycles. So basically saying, hey, you want to continue to have, if you can do um, more than two smaller mid-sized deals per year with meaningful total market cap acquired median of 15% that you can outperform. Whereas if you just are really doing like one massive deal, you're actually having a greater 
risk to underperform. And then they have here programmatic versus selective M&A. So doing less than two deals per year. And, and so it's kind of more one-off or ad hoc, but they're saying, hey, if you have a, a kind of continuous M&A function and you keep that going in a downturn, then you can basically get better deals. That's kind of the bottom chart here in this article. Your valuation goes down and you know you can extract more synergies from it as a strategic buyer. And you know, you've got an extra 15% of profit, whatever, in these bar charts that they put together. Okay. Point here is they look at what were the MA themes and they surveyed a bunch of uh, companies and said, hey, look, you know, if you look at the blue, you know, these blue uh, COVID shocks, right? That, you know, it's causing companies to change or reassess how they think about M&A because of COVID makes sense. Now we don't know how companies are necessarily changing, but here's what I would say is the real opportunity. Don't really touch on it in this article, but what you've seen, especially with COVID is the um, channel disruption that can come from these new digital business models. And how can you leverage tech M&A or at the very least, you know, a strong tech partnership, maybe with your uh, a dominant but still minority investor. How can you leverage tech partnerships, tech M&A, bring your scale to the table, find some tech companies that just would have been way too expensive to buy in the past couple of years with all the Fed printing and asset price inflation that we had. But now you're seeing startups that are kind of coming to grips with this new reality. The founders are very passionate, purpose-driven. They want to just get to where they want to get to and would be more than happy to look at partnering with a large strategic. Those deals are going to be coming much more fast and much more frequent. And the challenge there is if you don't have a good strategy to say, hey, what are we trying to buy just other businesses that look like ourselves? Great. You know, McKinsey's saying, yeah, you should keep doing that. Okay, cool. But what is the tech strategy? Where could a new digital business model actually be a compliment, actually accelerate the grander ambitions of the traditional enterprise. You need to have that figured out now going into the next couple of years so that you know what to look for, right? Because if you just have things show up on your doorstep that look nice, but you don't really know, like, I don't know, is this, is this strategically what I should be doing? Am I actually going to capture all the synergies and strategic advantages that I need for my broader business strategy, you know, that's the work that you need to do now to lay the foundation to then have the market work for you. And that's what's gonna happen. Already is starting to happen. It's only gonna happen more and more and more as more and more data comes out about how bad things really are and how bad they're gonna continue to get, which is what's gonna happen. But for a large traditional, you know, player, you can thrive in this environment. In the old days, the large tech monopolies would use these downturns to invest very aggressively. Like, what did you see right when COVID happened? You saw all the big tech monopolies say, hey, we're doubling down. We're investing in growth. Like, we're going to really rip it. And what did they do? Look, their numbers were astronomical off the charts. That's what traditional players need to be doing. And this is the perfect time to get started. Another example of markets shifting the definition of success, literally just in, a, in like weeks time, months time here, you know, these poor startup founders, you know, how do you even know 
where your true star north is? And, and I think the answer is you can't listen to the VCs because the VCs, these guys change their story every few months, right? The Fed starts doing something different. VCs change their story, act like, oh, well, you should have always been not burning money and just lighting money on fire and chasing growth. Like, yeah, that was obviously not the right thing to do, startup founder. I mean, the VC community is such hypocrites. And so now, you know, you got this Bloomberg article here, Tech's $1 billion unicorns eclipsed by Centaurs. We got a new name. Now, it isn't just about being a unicorn with a billion dollar valuation. Now, it's about having $100 million in annual recurring revenue. There are over 2,400 unicorns with billion dollar valuations and uh, billion dollar exits, so public or private. There are over 1,200 privately owned unicorns, so they're not public yet. And there are 489 centaurs, uh, which have $100 million in annual recurring revenue. And that is the, the now the hot metric to chase is revenue. That's this whole thing on centaurs. Now, it's not just about chasing that big valuation, but yeah, you need revenue. I mean... Really? Like that? It just it's so ridiculous. How would you get a billion dollar valuation? You would think that if you, right that your valuation is based on revenue and revenue growth, or if you're not a you know a SaaS business, it could be based on your uh, GMV or volumes. And but yeah, you know now what's vogue? What's in vogue is yeah, you need revenue. Oh, shocker! Thanks, Bessemer. Didn't know that. You know if you can tell, don't really appreciate all this rhetoric. These VCs, by the way, benefit when founders light money on fire because then that means they need more money. It gives more leverage to the VCs to decide if they want to give them more money and at what terms. So now that these VCs are saying, oh, well, yeah, you got to button down the hatches, you know, they've all been saying the same thing. For any VC to say, oh, no, 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 yeah, we were different. Um, you know, we weren't SoftBank, right? Like, you were all saying the same thing, just to varying degrees, just saying like, oh, well, SoftBank was saying to just go completely insane. But the VC community, basically at large or the large, large majority of them, probably all of them, was saying, yes, spend the money. You need the growth. SoftBank is in its own league. But still, honestly, the rhetoric was not that different. Now everyone likes to say, oh, yeah, look, yeah. Oh. Changing the goalposts per usual. Will the Centaur thing catch on? Probably not. Just more fluff brought to you by Bloomberg and Bessemer Ventures. And that's it for us today on Winner Take All. Thank you so much for joining us. Excuse the past couple of weeks of migrating to the new office setup. Stay tuned for more regular updates. Thank you for joining us.